0: We're going to learn again about courage and in particular, the courage to resist the crowd. Do you know the force of the pressure that comes from what everyone around you is doing? Uh, We may not see it clearly, uh, but for all of us, the environments that we inhabit will shape us Unless we're quite attentive, often they'll push us in the wrong direction. Are you aware of that? We're going to learn about the courage to stand and go in the right way, even when everyone else is going in the opposite way, from a story of four young Jewish prisoners. Their story is told in the opening chapters of the book of Daniel. Some of you will be familiar with their story. To others of you, it'll be the first time you hear it. I have to tell you, I'm glad that you get to hear it this morning. Uh, When Jared and I decided that this summer we would talk about courage, we each said, all right, let's decide who gets which stories. I called this one first. Uh, These four young men are among the many in Israel who had been taken uh, as prisoners during the time of the Babylonian exile. The timeline will help us here. Uh, It was 597, uh, almost 600 years before Christ, when the neighboring kingdom, the Babylonian kingdom, sent armies in to the holy city of Jerusalem, and they they ransacked it. Uh, They ruined the holy places of God's people, and they took the families of the Israelites captive, and they brought them from where they lived uh, to a foreign land. And the king, Nebuchadnezzar is his name, Uh, began a sort of programmatic attempt uh, to gain the loyalty of the people that had become his prisoners because in them he saw a real asset, that not only would he conquer their geographical region, but with them he would acquire resources so that his kingdom would become even stronger. The four young men that we're going to see in the beginning of uh, the book of Daniel are heroic, and they really are heroic in their courage because, and here's how they're going to teach us, they remain faithful to God even while living in a land that is hostile to their faith. Uh, They retain their relationship to God even as they are subjected to a king who aims at systematically removing God from their lives. And they're going to be our examples of the courage to resist. Uh, The story begins in chapter 1 of Daniel. And and this morning, we're going to spend a lot of time just looking at the story and learning from it. Uh, So here's how uh, the details are unfolded about the king's efforts at working with the prisoners. In verse 3 of chapter 1, here's what we read. The king, that's Nebuchadnezzar, commanded his palace master Ashpenaz to bring some of the Israelites of the royal family and of the nobility First, we learn about the target for the king. He orders his palace master to sift through all of the prisoners to find the ones who are the best connected, the ones who come from the most powerful families, the royal royal, uh, people who are among them, and from among them to grab a hold of the young social elites. This is where the king begins his strategy. In verse 4, Young men without physical defect and handsome, versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight and competent to serve in the king's palace. Young men from the right families with the best educations. Handsome and strong, the ones who everyone aspires to be like. Capable, bright, competent, and powerful. He focuses his efforts on the influencers of the people. This is the hub which he knows. If I can turn this hub, the whole wheel will rotate. Now look at his strategy with this select group in verse 4. They were to be taught the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Uh, The Chaldeans are the wise men of Babylon. They are the intellectuals. They're the ones who shape the thought and the values among the people, and their writings are the ones who have formed the religious outlook that is embodied in the culture to which this group has been brought, and therefore, they are the ones who determine how the people together in Babylon think about what's most important in the world. Their stories and their language is what moves people in the direction of the ultimate, okay? And it's the values... Of Babylon. And it's basically what we're seeing here is basically a re education camp, which the government is going to use to effectively absorb this population by destroying their culture and their outlooks. Do you know that this still happens today in our planet? Have you heard stories about this recently in China? If you want to determine the course of a generation. Which direction an entire generation goes in? What you do is you work through the minds of the brightest young people. That's how it works. Filling them with the literature and the language which captures the worldview which you want them to have. That's where you start. It's not where you end. Look at verse five. The king assigned them a daily portion of the royal rations of food and wine. They were to be educated for three years, So that at the end of that time, they could be stationed in the king's court. It's not only their intellect, but their physical diets that will be chosen for them. Every day, it will be the king's rations, his food, and his wine, which they consume along with his ideas. And for three years... For three years, this programmatic and systematic attempt to reform them will be undertaken with a promise at the end. Whoever succeeds will occupy a position of prominence in the land. Now, here, after this description of what's happening in Babylon, here is where we meet the four young men who are going to teach us this morning. I want you to look at verse five with me, uh, excuse me, uh, verse six with me. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the tribe of Judah. Now we're given their names and we're told which tribe they descend from. The tribe of Judah is an important tribe among God's people. The tribe of Judah is the tribe from which King David descended. And through King David, that's the tribe through which King Jesus comes to us. It's an important lineage that they come from. Aside from that, already in their names, the gospel is proclaimed to us. And we only see this if we know what their names mean. For the first readers of this story, of course, they would understand that the Hebrew name does not just identify a person distinguishing them from one other person, but rather embodies their essence in what it declares about who they are. Daniel means in Hebrew, God is my judge. God is the only judge. True judge. I want you to let this sink in for a moment. Every time you judge another person, you are trying to do what only God has the authority to do. Every time you even now listen to me, look at yourself and pass judgment against yourself, you are taking the position that belongs exclusively to God. And Daniel's name tells us this God is the judge. All of us will be judged one day by God. That's true. That's the first name. Look at the second name, Hananiah. That name means God has been gracious. What kind of judge is God? God is the judge who is gracious, who is merciful from beginning to end, who looks at each and every one of us in our guilt and says, I choose not to judge you according to your failures and your transgressions. I have the prerogative to do that because I'm God and I'm the judge and I choose not to deal with you according to your transgressions. That is proclaimed all throughout the scriptures. In the Psalms, it's magnificently portrayed. Who is like this God? Oh, by the way, that's what Mishael means. Who is like our God? The next name in the list. Who is like the God who chooses, even though he is pure and perfect and holy, to judge with mercy and grace? Who is like that God? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one is like that God. Only the God of these three and four young men who've been robbed from their own people's place in Jerusalem and brought into this foreign land and now are subjected to this mind-changing ideology. Only their God is like this, the one who judges with grace always. Azariah, that name means God has helped. What is the purpose of God's judgment, which comes in grace? It's simple, it's to help us. And who doesn't need help? Anyone? I knew I could make you be quiet with that one. We all need help. And help comes from the one true God who judges in grace in order to help us. And no one else is like that. And already in this story where we meet these four extraordinary young men of courage who are going to show us in a moment what it looks like to be courageous enough to resist, already we hear through their names the truth about God declared that he is unique and that he is the judge who is gracious. No one else is like him, and he judges us to help, and he judges all to help. But now here in this environment, these four young men experience, listen to me now, what even though it may look different to us, all of us will experience, which is tremendous pressure to have God pushed out of our lives so that it can be replaced with the language and literature of Babylon. Look at the last step this king takes in verse seven. The palace master gave them other names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do you, have you heard of them? Sh- Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. When I was a kid, that's how I learned it. It was like, ooh. Mm. <laughs> I am glad you appreciate that. That's not, that's not their names. What happened is this man, he showed his hand by taking The reference to the God of the Hebrews, which is right there in every one of their names, Daniel, El in Hebrew is God. He took that out and he replaced it with one of the names of a Babylonian deity who is no God, Marduk. And, and, and every one of them has the, the reference to God, Yah, Hananiah, Henan, that's God again, taken out so that it can be replaced with one of the false gods of this foreign place that's put them in there. And so here he shows us that trying to press Bel and Marduk and Nabu into their names, he's actually trying to push God all the way out of their identities and instead make them identify with this God that is no God. And in this way, claim this people for his own so that his nefarious purposes can be carried forward. There are still governments that overtly aim at repressing the faith of uh, of the people that they take power over in our own day. You can read about it right now. It's happening in China with re-education camps. Uh, In that country, it's illegal to be a Christian who teaches anything other than the state sanctioned scriptures, which are heavily edited. And if you're going to preach, you have to show the government uh, organization your sermon before it's allowed to be preached. And if you don't, you will be arrested. It happened in April. A large church in that country was raided and the pastors were put in jail for espousing a view that didn't fit with the government ideology. And that is very similar to what we see happening in the book of Daniel with these young men. And and thank God we live in a place where we have the freedoms that we do. And I, I mean that. We should thank God for that. Let me say two other things. We should pray for people who don't have that freedom. And we should not be naive enough to think that we still don't find ourselves actually in an environment that is an awful lot like Babylon. Do You know this? It's so effective because it's not overt, but it's covert that we are surrounded, every single one of us, by environments that will systematically seek to take God out of us and put the language and the literature of Babylon metaphorically into us instead. And I want to be specific here. And it happens in every social environment we find ourselves in. It happens in families where the rules and the norms for behavior are not God's rules and norms for behavior. That's just like Babylon. Let me be uh, even more specific. Where siblings grow up as adversaries. Some of you have been profoundly shaped by the fact that you always fight with your siblings. And instead of cooperating, you are always combative. Adults in here haven't talked to their siblings for years because that's the norm. Instead of in that family that you grew up in, instead of the norm being mercy, it's retribution. Instead of forgiveness being the rule, it is resentment. And because of that, like the programming efforts of Nebuchadnezzar, your family system has displaced the values of God in you and put instead the values of Babylon, which is eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Do you see it? It happens in many of your workplaces where the operating assumption is the ends justify the means, so do whatever you have to to get there. If that means uh, pushing the others around you down with your own ambitions and slandering them, lying, deceiving, cheating, cheating, driven by greed and hunger for your own power, if it means that they suffer, who cares? Because in that workplace, the, the language of Babylon and the literature of Babylon is what comes uh, forward. And that is, put yourself first. And, and again, if you, does anyone work like, in a place like that here? If you're with your boss, don't say, I do. It, the cumulative effect will be like the systematic removal of God to make room for the deities of Babylon, which are no deities. It happens in school, profoundly, where the social norms for you who are in middle school or high school have nothing to do with the grace and mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus. It happens in the social networks which you belong to, whether in physical reality where you go to the club or in cyberspace online where you yourself will be subjected over and over again to values that have nothing to do with God's values. It happens through the news networks that you choose to concern consume, whichever news network that is. Everywhere, like these young men, we find ourselves subjected to powers aimed at filling us with values that are contrary to God's changing our names, trying to take the God out of us. What we need is the courage to resist. And that's what these four young men show us so profoundly, the strength to move in the opposite direction from the influences all around us. What happens with them is they show us what it looks like to have the resolve, which... Listen now, you need personally and our church needs all together so that we can be the instrument God wants us to be. The resolve not to let the winds of culture determine our values and to form our convictions for us. We need the mental attentiveness to guard our minds so they are prevented from being filled with whatever is easiest and most convenient to consume. Our mission as a church, I wanna speak about Renaissance Church now, is to build up disciples. I wanna stop there to build up disciples means to equip men and women with courage. And that's why we decided on this, uh, this theme for this summer because you can't be a, a, a disciple unless you learn to have the courage to resist the pressures that are always gonna be pushing you away from God and into the wrong direction. Look at what Daniel does. Okay, in this environment, here's where we see what it looks like to have the courage to resist. This is in verse eight. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine. So he asked the palace master to allow him not to defile himself. There's a decision and an action described here. He decides, he makes a resolution. You see, it. he resolved that I will not defile myself in order to fit in with this program. And in his day, uh, the people of God had a very specific diet that was a part of what it meant to be obedient to God. And the king's rations didn't fit. And so he decided, I'm not, I'm not gonna do it. And that's the first step in courage is to make a resolute decision. And I hope already that something specific has occurred to you about what you might be called to resist, to be one of God's people. The first step is to make a resolution. The second is to do something. And what he does is he goes to the person who's in charge, the palace master, and without any equivocation, he tells him what he wants. He does it. Politely, let me, he says. He doesn't make a demand. He doesn't push himself in in a way that's bound to awaken the kind of resistance that won't work. He's tactful. And that's what we need to learn tactful resistance. And and now in verse 9, the the narrator tells us what happens with God whenever one of God's people decides not to go away from God and to be courageous instead. And you can count on this as a principle. Look at verse 9. Now, God allowed Daniel to receive favor and compassion from the palace master. We have to be careful here and precise. God does not make from now on everything go exactly as Daniel would hope. That's not how God works. God doesn't absolve us of our ongoing responsibility to walk courageously. Just when we try our best, God doesn't say, I've got it from here and you don't have to do anything. That's not actually how God works. There are times when God miraculously intervenes. It is not the norm. The norm is that God does, in fact, operate in the minds and hearts of adversaries, the things which stand in the way of your going in the way God wants you to. God does, in fact, work in their hearts and minds to incline them toward favor and compassion. And that's what we read here. And if you wonder, where is God at work? God is at work when you are courageous to stand up and do the right thing in the minds and hearts of those who stand in the way. Look at what happens. Notice now, okay? This is the outcome, verse 10. The palace master said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king. He has appointed your food and drink. Notice, this is what God's inclination in the man does. Instead of just saying, absolutely not, if you ask again, you're in trouble. He starts talking about what happens inside of him when he thinks about granting this desire. Do you notice that? He says, I'm afraid. And he tells him what he's afraid of. If I do what you ask, I'm going to get in trouble with the king. He continues to describe more of why he's hesitant. And this is what God's favor does. Look, if he should see you in poorer condition than the other young men of your own age, you would endanger my head with the king. So he tells him why he can't grant his request. If I give it to you, you're gonna become weak because the food will make you strong and then the king will see and it's my head if that happens. And what Daniel does now is he shows us what truly tactful resistance looks like. And trust me now, this took a massive courage because in effect, he asked the man in charge to defy the orders of the king just so he wouldn't have to eat food. Can you imagine the courage that that took? But now he takes the information he learns and he's tactful with it. And if you are going to be successful as God's man or God's woman in moving away from the crowd and where God wants you to, you're gonna also have to be tactful. Watch what he does. Verse 11, then Daniel asked the guard, whom the palace master had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Do you see what he did? I don't think you see it yet. He didn't continue arguing with the palace master. He just went to someone else. Mom said no, so what do you do? (laughs) Dad, can I, right? That's what he's doing here. The first guy said no and told him why. The answer was no. So he goes to the second guy, asks him, and look at what he does. Verse 13. Uh, excuse me, verse 12. Please test your servants for 10 days. Uh, let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Uh, he's got a strategy here. He's not just saying, don't make us eat at all. Give me 10 days on a different diet. 13. You can then compare our appearance with the appearance of the young men who eat the royal rations and deal with your servants according to what you observe. That is, he's thoughtful and considerate of how he can move forward toward what God wants of him which is to eat the right kind of food rather than the wrong kind of food to consume the the truth of God's word rather than replacing it with what Babylon wants to give it and instead of just saying i'm not going to do it and therefore of course meeting the kind of resistance that he could never get through Daniel and his companions are strategic and tactful in their resistance which requires thought and intelligence and which shows us here gathered together what every man and woman of maturing faith must come to, especially in times like ours. And that is the ability to recognize that we also are influenced by forces that we may not recognize and to take our time to think about how God might encourage and enable us to use the the intelligence that he's given us so that we don't get sucked in and dragged down to become who we're not meant to be. Every one of us, every one of us will find ourselves in some form of Babylon, and the challenge to grow as a follower of Jesus will require us to recognize where we're being pulled in the wrong direction and then to be strategic about how to resist. As your pastor, I'm asking every one of you to do this. I'm giving you an assignment to spend time reflecting on your own life where you are right now and ask God to help you see where you have opened yourself or the people you're responsible for to the language and literature of Babylon and then ask for God to make you strategic in resisting that influence so that you or the people you're responsible for can go in the right direction instead of the wrong. I don't know what that is for you. I promise you, if you open yourself to it, And seek God's word and God's prayer. He'll make it plain to you concretely. And then what you should do is resist. I've done this myself. I'll share personally what it is for me. And this is what it is for me. When I look at myself where I am right now and what I'm responsible for as a Christian father of young children, I see the nine, 10, and 11-year-olds around me, and I see my own. And what I recognize is that the cell phone and the internet is filling young people with the language and literature of Babylon in a way that is literally reprogramming them. To look at themselves and be conscious about their bodies already and feel ashamed of their bodies if they don't measure up to this or that. To be constantly anxious about what their peers are thinking of them so that depression and anxiety is literally directly correlated to the time spent on Snapchat, Instagram, and Facebook. That's no longer the opinion of some obscurantists or people who liked the Luddites. It's a fact that increased engagement with cell phone and internet is bad for the spirit, emotions, minds, even if you're not a Christian, of young people, but if you're a Christian and you see the way that the most popular and persuasive YouTube star, who is a nonsense circus master, can make kids believe whatever he wants. When I see that, I think my responsibility is to keep my children away from cell phones, and the internet as long as I possibly can. Now, that's me. Listen, if it's you too, do you think that that will be easy? No, of course not. Do you think everybody else will be, oh, good idea for you to do that to your kids? Absolutely not. Even other people of faith will say, if you do that, it's gonna be so bad, you're gonna cut them off from their social lives, you're gonna make them feel like outsiders, etc. I think outsiders to what? To that Babylon mess? So that's me. It might not be you. I know it's going to be hard. I know it's going to require tact from me. And I know it's going, to, it's going to put me in a position of being an outsider. Okay, it's what I think God is calling me to do as their dad who wants to guide them away from Babylon and into God's word. What is it for you? And, and here I want every one of you to open your minds, not to me at all, but to God's influence in his spirit. Maybe for you, You don't have any problem with that with your kids. Maybe you don't have kids and you just have a friendship group, but when you open your eyes, you'll see my friends always are influencing me away from God. And so it's time for me to be resistant of that and I have to be tactful in how to do it. Ask God how to help you do it. Daniel and his friends are an example of what it looks like to resist. It could be your environment at work. It could be uh, your extended family. Who knows? God knows and if you open your mind to him, uh, he'll let you know too. Uh, and that's what you should seek, some concrete form of tactful resistance. Now, what happens if you do this? Okay, there are two very plain outcomes from the story, and I want you to see both of them because I want us to go into this with open eyes if we go into it. The first outcome is that after Daniel makes this very tactful sales pitch to his guard, The guard says, fine, we'll try it out for 10 days. Maybe the guard wanted to eat the meat and drink the wine himself. At the end of the 10 days, instead of becoming weaker, the boys are much stronger than every other boy in the program. If you resist going away from God and go on the path that God calls you to go on, you will not diminish, but you will thrive. That's the first lesson. And it's plain as day. Now, if... If that were where the story ended, uh, uh, that would be one thing. It's not where the story ends because that's only part of the promise. There's a second promise, which is also equally true to the fact that you will thrive. It is that you will experience even greater resistance, and it will be really hard, and I cannot tell you whether the outcome at the end will look positive or not. I know for sure if you swim up the stream, you will get really tired. It's hard to do. Or if you go against the grain, you know that metaphor? You know what happens when you go against the grain? You get splinters and they hurt. And anyone who resists the pressure all around to go this way by going the other way will not only thrive in God's way, but will also face increased resistance that will mean, listen now, you will end up in some kind of fire. And fires hurt. And I wanna be as honest as I can about this. The, the, the witness of the scriptures as well as the witness of history shows us that brave young, and, young men and women and, and, young, uh, and old men and women of every age, brave people who follow God away from the crowd always face persecution. Uh, but that's what's required of us if we will go in God's way. Uh, and, and listen now, you don't need to be afraid. Actually, let me say this again. You will be afraid but you don't need to let your fear determine what you do. Because this is an absolutely trustworthy promise. No matter which fire obedience to God lands you in, listen now, he will always be right there with you in the fire. Okay, not keeping you out of it, but in it. Do you hear that? And this is where the story of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego goes to. Because after Excelling in the three-year program and rising up to prominence, the king Nebuchadnezzar turns up the volume on his attempts to culturally influence all of the, the people that he's brought into his kingdom. He sets up a gigantic statue of himself. He puts it in the most prominent place in the kingdom. He gathers all of the musicians of the kingdom together, and he says, now, when they start playing music, everyone bows down to worship me and, and and Daniel and his friends know that they're called only to worship God the true God who is not king Nebuchadnezzar and so even after this programming of 3 years when everyone else hears the music and they bow down these 3 now we see Shadrach Meshach and Abednego Daniel's somewhere off uh, out of the story at this point these 3 decide we will not bow down even though everyone else does and look they get in trouble for it they're spotted they're, uh, they're arrested. They're brought into the presence of King Nebuchadnezzar. And, and there, right in the presence of the king, it is reported that even though you made it plain that when the music plays, everyone bows, these three will not bow. And now they stand before the King Nebuchadnezzar, who, listen now, is nothing like their God because he has no grace in him at all and no mercy at all. And listen, whichever false God you bow down to worship, whether it's self-image, or money, or popularity, or not being someone who disagrees with others, who has an unpopular opinion, those gods have no mercy for you. Did you hear that? I'm telling you, even if you succeed, they have no mercy for you. And watch what Nebuchadnezzar says. This is in verse 15 of the third chapter, Nebuchadnezzar says to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods and you do not worship the golden statue that I've set up? He asks them, is it true what I've heard? And he uses their false names. Even here, he's trying to make them into people who follow his God. Now, he says, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, and entire musical ensemble to fall down and worship the statue that I've made, well and good. That's his way of saying, when the music comes, bow down and everything will be okay. Now put yourself in the the position of these three. This guy can kill them. And he's telling them, you have to bow down and everything's gonna be good. Verse 16, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who's the God that will deliver you out of my hands? He tells them the consequences, which are scary, There's a furnace that's used for executing people, burning them to death. And if you don't do what I say, he tells them, that's your fate. And I'm gonna tell you this, whichever area you find yourself in, and I hope that God is making it concrete to you as he's made it to me. Whatever the resistance that you're called to exercise as a person of God with courage and tact, I'm telling you right away, there's gonna be a voice in your ear that says, if you do this, the consequences are gonna be really bad. That's exactly how the enemy works. And here these three young men are standing before this man who does have the power to throw them into the furnace, but then he asks them that question, who's the God who's going to deliver you out of my hands? Do you remember what we learned from their names about who this God is? He is the judge, and he is merciful, and there's no one else like him. And he is the God who has helped, please listen, who will help in the present, and who promises to help at all times in the future as well. And so faced with this threat, they stand before the king, and they respond in verse 17 with what, with what is my all-time favorite response anywhere in scripture to a threat from an enemy of God. I'm sorry, it's, it's verse 16 where it starts. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. These three young men effectively say to the king, that's like the nonverbal. They say talk to the hand. Was that out like in 2005? Did that go out of, it did? All right, I shouldn't have tried that. It's mental note, don't try to be culturally relevant. We we don't even need to talk to you. This is the guy who thinks he's God. He's wrong. We don't even need to defend ourselves, they say. And then they add, this is so brilliant. If our God, whom we serve, because Nebuchadnezzar brought up their God, if our God who we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not, Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. (laughs) What is so astounding about this is that it is resistance that is not predicated upon an assurance of a positive future outcome. They do not say, we're not going to follow you because everything is going to be all right. And that would have been courageous enough. Look at the words there, if not. They genuinely do not know what's gonna happen. They actually don't know. They do know, listen now, they do know that their God is able they know that. God has done miraculous things in the past. God makes a way where there is no way. That, that happens, right? But they don't claim that because they don't know. They don't know whether God is going to actually take them out of the fire or not. And so they don't make a promise that we're not gonna do what you ask because uh, it doesn't matter what you do to us. God's gonna rescue us and everything's gonna be okay. They say, if not, even then still, we're not gonna do what you ask us to do. And this is, I think, the epitome of what courage is which is tactful and yet resistance no matter what to any inclination to go away from God, what it actually looks like, and this should be our inspiration, individually as people who want to follow God and corporately as a church that has a mission to build up disciples in such a way that we are effective in this world at inviting and inspiring other people not to have our ideology or to think or behave just like us, but to love and serve God. Jesus, who is the true king. And that's what our mission is, and to do it together. Do you notice that there are four and then three young men working at this? This is not an individual effort. We have to work together at this, and if we would have the kind of power and courage that these three do, what we would see is God's power manifest in a massive way. In response to their statements, the king loses it. That's what happens. He completely loses it. He orders the furnace to be heated seven times higher than how it ordinarily is. So that when these young men are bound up and brought to the furnace, before the guards can throw them in, the guards themselves are incinerated. And as they're burned up, the three young men fall right into the fire and there they are suffering the consequences of their disobedience. When, this is verse 24, this is what happens, when King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up quickly. He said to his counselors, "Was it not 3 men that we bound, we threw bound into the fire?" Uh, because he sees something that he didn't expect. They answered the king, "True, O king." Verse 25. He replied, "But I see 4 men unbound, walking in the middle of the fire, and they are not hurt." And the 4th has the appearance of a God. And here, what we see prefigured for every one of us who is willing to be courageous enough to resist all of the powers that would push us away from Jesus Christ to instead identify ourselves with him, to believe in him and trust in him with true and genuine faith so that we have the courage to resist all of the forces to the contrary. What we see here prefigured for us is the promise that if we will obey Jesus, we will go into the fire and he will always be with us. No matter which fire we go into when we follow him, that's promised here. Do you see it? Will he take us out of the fire? We don't know, but we know he'll be there with us. And in this story, he does take them out of the fire. The spirit, the one who is like a God who is there with them, the God who Nebuchadnezzar tried to remove from God's people but can never be removed because he's sovereign. That God was there with them and rescued them. That's what happened in this story. What we can trust, and I promise you this, is if you obey Jesus, and go against the grain and swim up the stream, you will thrive, you will face all kinds of resistance, you will go into some kind of challenge, I don't know what it is, it'll be a fire, but you will always be accompanied by Jesus into every fire. And listen now, even if that fire consumes you now, there will be a day when the ashes rise from the fire, when the redemption of the Lord of all, Jesus, comes and is felt as he redeems heaven and earth as he promised to do and sets everything right. And in that moment, our courage will, ca- will, will disappear. We won't need courage anymore because it will be joy through and through as God remakes everything that was lost by the misery of Babylon. And it's a memory. It's actually eradicated from a memory. And all that's left is the glory of God and the people who trusted and are redeemed with him forever and ever. Hallelujah. Let's pray together, friends. God, for the power of your word, we give you thanks. For the power of your spirit, which operates when we simply tell the stories of what you've done, we give you thanks. For the courage of Daniel and his friends. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who wouldn't let the king tell them who they were, but instead remembered who they were in you. God, would they serve as an example of what courage looks like for every single one of us in here, individually and for all of us together as a church, so that Renaissance Church would be a church that was courageous to trust you and to go against the grain no matter where it led, And then God, especially for this last moment in the story, we give you praise that there is no fire that we will ever go into if we are following you in which you will not accompany us. That there is no water through which we might have to go. That if you lead us, that you also won't be there with us in the water. That you are the God who says, trust me, I've called you by name and I've claimed you, are mine. So that when you go through the waters, you will not be overwhelmed. And when you go through the flames, you will not be burned because we are beloved by you. Thank you for your grace, O oh God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.